you know, capacity is just one of them, but it's something that, you know, on a daily or weekly basis, we end up having to address. Today, Dr. Melanie Hennef, an emergency physician who is about to complete her studies in law school, joins us to discuss medical decision-making capacity. I think the first thing is just to remember that the, the key word is capacity, not competency. And how do EMS providers assess for a lack of medical decision-making capacity, even when the patient is able to answer questions correctly? The medics get into this ordeal where the patient's clearly not right. I mean, there's something going on, but yet he's alert and oriented. I mean, he could tell them the year. He um, knew the town he was in. He knew his name and he's adamant that he doesn't want to be transported, but you know, something's off. What do EMTs and paramedics need to know about how to document their findings to protect themselves? I think a couple of key words that come up repeatedly um, in legal cases, one is good faith and the other is reasonable. As we arrive back in quarters. The following podcast is provided as a public service. Back in quarter should not be used as a source of medical advice, medical direction, or legal advice or counsel. Always follow your local protocols, medical direction, policies, and procedures. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation. The views expressed by the guests are their own, and their appearance on this program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by the host do not necessarily reflect the view of their respective employers or others. If you have any questions about this disclaimer, please contact us. Well, hi there, and thanks for joining us for our very first podcast. Uh, my name is Dustin Weber. I'm the Regional EMS Education Coordinator for SSM Health. I am, of course, joined by Dr. Casey Cronenfeld, who's our Regional EMS Medical Director. Good morning, good evening, whatever time we are reaching you at. <laughs> Through the magic of podcasts. So um, we, uh, we have kind of uh, an exciting topic today. I think it's interesting. Um, it's one of those that I think is very hard to um, really come to a, a, a good consensus on, a good method of documenting, a good method of explaining, and that is capacity. And uh, Dr. Cronenfeld, you have a, a colleague who you've brought along to the, the show today who's uh, maybe got some insight into that topic. Yeah, I think many of our listeners are, have heard me on my soapbox uh, about how important it is in regarding informed consent and refusal and understanding of does somebody have medical decision making. So I invited a colleague who I know back from Indiana, Dr. Melanie Hennef, who's got a really interesting and fantastic background to yeah. help us tackle this topic. Uh, so Dr. Hennef, uh, is a pediatric emergency medicine specialist. So she trained in both pediatrics and emergency medicine and has worked at Indiana University and some of the community hospitals around Indianapolis for over 20 years and then decided a couple years ago to go back and get her law degree. So I'd love to introduce my colleague and an incredible mentor during my time at Indiana University for my residency and fellowship and welcome her to our show. Thank you. Thank you for being here. So can you start? Um, you, it sounds like you've had really kind of an interesting um, career path. Can you kind of talk about what led you from point A to point B to point C? Sure. I think as an emergency physician, 
we find that there are so many legal issues that come up in the department and, you know, capacity is just one of them, but it's something that, you know, on a daily or weekly basis, we end up having to address and, you know, issues like against medical advice or following MTEL law or HIPAA, it's really endless. And I stayed interested in the law my whole career. Um, I kept doing a lot of teaching about legal topics. And then finally, my kids were old enough that it was possible to go back to school. Um, fortunately for me, Indiana University has a great health law program. So mm. even though I still had to take all the core legal courses, you know, like civil procedure, criminal procedure, I could focus my electives on health law. Very cool. Very cool. That has got to give you some unique insight to a lot of different topics. Yeah. So the topic we kind of decided to focus on today to be relevant to many of our EMS providers out there is the understanding of medical decision-making capacity. How does that relate to our ability to provide care to patients or maybe support not providing care? Um, understanding how do we actually assess for that capacity and what other conditions, environmental factors could influence um, the patient's ability to have capacity? And then some of our unique populations, in particular pediatrics, pregnancy, uh, patients with disabilities, patients with dementia, how do all those play into it? And guardians, supervisors, et cetera, how, how can we understand better all of these different components in a truly complicated topic that may be very different from one case to another? So I think we've got an exciting um, array of information to discuss today and love that we can hear directly from an expert who's been through all these different parts before. Sure. I think um, Casey and I probably can both talk about different cases where this has come up. And I think the first thing is just to remember that the, the key word is capacity, not competency. Uh, personally, many people get these confused. And the way I remember things when there are two competing ideas or confusing ideas, I only learn one of them and then I just forget the other one. So competency, we just don't need to know anything about that. We're never going to be able to declare someone competent or incompetent. It's a legal definition. So that usually requires a court hearing and a judge would ultimately make that decision, even though a medical provider might weigh in. Um, a classic example is somebody with mental illness. The judge would decide based on a psychiatric evaluation whether that person is competent to stand trial. So medically, that has nothing to do with us. Mm. Uh, capacity, however, is really um, a medical judgment. And any medical professional can make a reasonable determination of someone's capacity to make decisions. And not just any decision, but is that decision informed? Um, so informed decisions and consent kind of go hand in hand. And I think the most important thing is, uh, does the patient understand the nature of what you're talking about? Do they know risks of benefit, risks or benefits or alternatives? You know, in some cases, if you were offering a certain type of treatment, um, you would want to give the patient options. And then most importantly, can they communicate that they understand it? So if they can, you want them to repeat back to you, explain what I just said to you. Um, and that helps to determine capacity. And really all we can do is just make the best decision we can. We kind of stick to those um, short definitions of can you tell me risks and benefits? What did I just explain to you? Do you understand? Do you know what your options are? Um, and I think 
trying to keep it simple helps. But then when we get into the day-to-day scenarios, that's when the, the trouble begins because it sounds really simple on paper. Um, and in real life, especially in the field, it's not simple. <laughs> Absolutely. I think um, you make a really good point there. How are, are there any particular methods that you can use um, to determine something like capacity beyond um, just repeating things back? I know I've certainly run into some patients who are able to do that, but still seem like maybe they're not um, in the right place to be able to make decisions. Sure. I have a great example from just a couple months ago. Um, I was working in a smaller community ED and the medics got called to um, talk to this patient and possibly transport him. And it's, his name is Joe and he lived alone. He's elderly. Um, it's 30 degrees out and he walks over to a neighbor's house several doors down and he's wearing shorts, no shoes or socks and no shirt. It's 30 degrees out. And he proceeds to walk into the neighbor's house. And so this poor lady, she recognizes him from the neighborhood but they don't even know each other's names. And she calls 911. And so the medics get into this ordeal where the patient's clearly not right. I mean, there's something going on, but yet he's alert and oriented. I mean, he could tell them the year. He um, knew the town he was in. He knew his name. And he's adamant that he doesn't want to be transported. But, you know, something's off. And he's also known to be a heavy drinker, um, being a small town the medics recognize him. He's riding his bike around town often. A lot of people recognize him from local bars. So we all kind of think he's probably intoxicated, um, but there might be more to that. So the medics tried everything and he was absolutely adamant that it was perfectly normal that he walked into his neighbor's house. He just wanted to visit a neighbor. Um, he didn't think it was odd that he was not wearing clothes basically <laughs> in the cold weather. And so they had me get on the phone with them and I had a very hard time telling, too, because he could have, a, you know, it seemed like a rational conversation. You know, I don't want to go. Why would I want to go to the hospital? I'm fine. Let me go home. And we all figured he was probably intoxicated, but um, it was hard to tell over the phone. And the medics said they didn't smell it. Um, mm. I think that's a mistake. A lot of people think that everyone that's intoxicated, you can smell alcohol. But depending on how they metabolize and what they're drinking, you might not. So it's really, really unreliable. And obviously, we can't smell other drugs. So um, still have to think, well, this guy's probably impaired, even though he's technically alert and oriented times three, but he's really not showing other capacity. Like he can't repeat back um, what we told him. He can't verbalize why we want him to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. So um, we know if he's intoxicated, we can't let him sign out. So the police get involved and they think he's fine because he's A and O times three. And so finally, we try to convince them to take a breathalyzer test. He refuses. And why do people refuse? Because they're drunk, right? So, so again, we all think he's probably intoxicated, but we think there's something else going on because why is he walking around in the cold? So the police negotiate with him. They don't want to force him to come in. But they said, well, all right, let's make sure everything's okay at home. They're thinking maybe there's a family member that can help us. So they said, Joe, where do you live? And he's like, oh, I live right around here. So, okay, Joe, why don't you go into your house and, and we'll follow you? So Joe proceeds to walk down the street and pass up his own house. And then they're like, Joe, come back, come back. So he walks back and he again passes up his own house. So he's clearly not right, um, but really fighting coming in. 
And I tried to talk to him personally and it just went in circles. And mm. so I think at that point, you know, what's reasonable? Is it reasonable to let this guy who's confused, half-dressed, it's cold, he can't even find his own house? Um, even So even though he's not um, cooperative, the police had to help the medics bring him in. Um, you know, the risk is, is that assault, you know, that we drag mm. him into the ER against as well. And um, they did, with all the people involved, we did get him to come in and he became very agitated and even more confused and, you know, aggressive um, in the ED. So, you know, unfortunately we had to give him some held all. Um, and still, you know, we were uncomfortable. This is not completely clear cut, but I think we had enough individuals who could say in good faith, we're concerned about Joe, something's not right. So, you know, the more people that you have involved with that input, I think the stronger you'll have support for bringing someone in. Mm -hmm. We had police, we had multiple medics, we had the neighbor, we had me on um, the phone. So, you know, you just have to do the best you can. And I think in terms of liability, as long as you're doing something reasonable and something that in good faith you think is in the patient's best interest, you're not going to be faulted for that. I mean, I think, um, you know, again, this was really tough and he ended up having medical issues and infection. He was admitted. So I feel like we did the right thing, but it was really difficult at the time. So I think mm -hmm. in that is it's not enough that you can rattle off the year, the president, your name. Um, there has to be a little bit more involved in capacity. So that sounds like a fantastic case um, that really sets up a lot of the issues our providers face on a day-to-day -day basis. I'd love to break that down a little bit. You agree, Dustin? Absolutely. So I think first and foremost, um, let's talk about the different tools that EMS used to help support and kind of further identify what was going on. I totally agree. This was not a nice black and white case where um, the providers feel confident or comfortable in either pathway. So that abandonment versus assault, I think, is a very real issue in this case. So first and foremost, um, it sounds like they got law enforcement involved. Can you speak a little bit more, uh, Dr. Hennef, um, in regards to how we can best partner with our law enforcement colleagues and maybe how their perspective and how they tackle some of these situations might differ a little bit than ours from the medical side? Sure. I think most of the time we're in agreement, but I think sometimes it's difficult because law enforcement may not want to get involved. They don't feel like there's enough to um, forcibly bring a patient into the emergency department. So I think in those cases, it's good for everyone to communicate, you know, what are the concerns? I think in this case, law enforcement did not really support the medics initially. And they said, okay, Joe, you know, let's go to your house. And then when they realized Joe couldn't find his house, they were more cooperative. So we rely on the um, police. So we always want to keep it a positive relationship if we can. And so I think sometimes as a medical professional explaining to the police, well, here's our concern. You know, he's altered. He's uh, potentially has hypothermia. He is, you know, not acting right. He walked into this stranger's house and we feel like there's something medical going on. We need glucose, we need vital signs. And a lot of times just that show of force, you have concerned medics, police officer or two, a lot of times patients will just sort of um, calm down and cooperate. 
Some get more agitated, but I think we want the police helping us and their biggest um, benefit to us, I think, is that they keep us safe. I mean, we don't want our medics in danger. And if a you know patient is potentially going to physically harm them or harm themselves, police can be a great asset. Um, the police can also uh, complete an immediate detention order. So that allows medics to bring someone in against their will, um, at least to get clearance. So I think they're really our partners in this, but they are not medical. So they might not understand that um, Joe has other issues. Dr. Hennef, can you speak a little bit to the perspective that law enforcement may have when they come in and how their perspective of trying to decide whether they should perform that immediate detention and what impact that has um, from a law enforcement officer's perspective versus the EMS medical provider? Sure. I think um, law enforcement is certainly concerned about, well, is this criminal? I mean, you're allowed to be a little bit um, off. You know, there are a lot of strange, <laughs> I don't know what, what the right word is, um, unusual people that exist just fine on their own and in society. And it's not a crime. You know, you can't force someone to come in so they're looking at it from a legal standpoint, like, am I taking this person against their will? Am I violating their rights? Um, is this unreasonable? I can't arrest this person, but um, they need to be detained. Situations like Joe's are really difficult. The clear cut ones are somebody who's very intoxicated or suicidal. So I think the police officers don't hesitate to help when somebody's clearly suicidal or homicidal. But I think they're also um, more focused on the individual's rights and whether there's a criminal issue than they are on a risk of a medical issue. So I, I don't know if they answered your question, but I think the key is communicating what are the medical concerns? Why do we need the police to help us in this situation? So correct me if I'm wrong here. If law enforcement does um, enforce that and essentially take them into custody because of concerns for ability to care for themselves um, or, you know, lack of capacity to make these decisions, they are ultimately in the position then that law enforcement is kind of acting as their guardian, correct? Correct. And thus, they're also in charge of kind of the further decision making then. So I think that that's something that our partners do not take very lightly um, and really want to kind of like you mentioned here, make sure that they're not impinging on a person's civil rights. And that's that's always a tough thing. So it is the balance. And I think kind of what Dr. Hennef mentioned is, is that clear, transparent discussion of as the medical provider, what are your concerns and why do you feel that if you leave this patient that they are a risk to themselves or others and why you feel if you left them, you may feel like you are abandoning them versus um, that the benefits of, you know, basically taking away their rights to their own decisions um, and how does that weigh in? I think a couple of key words that come up repeatedly um, in legal cases, one is good faith and the other is reasonable. And so good faith means I was this provider just trying to do the best thing for the patient with the information I had at that time. So reasonable is um, getting Joe to come to the hospital. Unreasonable is, um, you know, tackling Joe and putting them in four point restraints. And, you know, they, everyone tried to work with them and everyone tried to gather more information. So this is totally reasonable. And we all had the same concerns. It's reasonable. Um, you know, good faith just means you're trying to do the best you can with the information available. 
an example would be the opposite is if it's somebody that, boy, this guy really irritated the police. He's fine, but they're going to arrest him and bring him to the hospital, say that he was psychotic. Um, you know, that's not reasonable. That's not in good faith. And I, I think most providers should not worry about liability when you can honestly say you're trying to do the best thing for the patient. Um, thing, where we worry about battery is where something is unreasonable. Um, and I, I can recall a case, this is kind of a, a horrible example, it's painful. Um, in residency, our residents used to fly on our uh, Lifeline medical helicopter and it was a resident and nurse team. They went out to a small hospital who had a trauma patient who hadn't been fully worked up yet. So it was unclear if he you know, had a head injury, but he was awake and talking and he was really ticked off about having to be flown to the trauma center. So he was refusing transport and they went back and forth. Um, he was not hypotensive. He was not hypoglycemic. They didn't have any blood work. So they didn't know if he was um, intoxicated. They didn't have a head CT. And so, you know, what do you do? That's a really tough case, right? The medics get called all the way out there. It's been determined that he potentially has life-threatening injuries. They want him to go to a trauma center. And they quickly made the decision to actually sedate, paralyze, and intubate him. Uh, they faced a lot of flack after that because you could arguably say, well, you know, was that assault? I mean, that was mm. really aggressive. But, you know, the other, the flip side, and you always have to understand both sides, the flip side is, well, he was an unworked up trauma patient. He had enough of a mechanism of injury and potential for serious or life-threatening injuries that uh, they wanted him transferred to a trauma center. And what if he uh, makes you unsafe in the back of the helicopter? So, you know, I don't have a, a right answer for that. I'd like to hear what Dr. Cronenfeld says. Um, again, our, our medical director at that time was very critical of their decision. And, you know, ultimately the patient did fine. Uh, there was not a battery charge, but, you know, that's one of those that I think is really on the fence unless he were hypotensive or, you know, clearly had a head injury. Well, and I think my question with with that particular case, and I think it leads down maybe a, even a, a, a slightly different uh, path for the discussion is at what point do people just have the right to make a bad decision for themselves? Right. I agree. Um, there's a, a horrible case. Um, and I'm sorry to use case examples. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but um, in law and medicine, we tend to use cases uh, to illustrate a point. Uh, there is a case in Indiana that we studied in law school a couple months ago, and it was a woman who came to the ED after she had clearly been beat up pretty severely. And she was with a significant other who had some red flags for abuse. He was always, you know, not willing to leave her side. He was answering questions for her. And she gave the typical, oh, I tripped over the dog type story. We've all heard that one. And it was pretty clear to everybody that this was not her mechanism of injury, but she was not intoxicated. She had capacity and they um, sewed up her lacerations, did some x-rays, and then her mother and sister showed up and they begged the, the nurse and the doctor not to let her go home with the significant other. Um, they said, we're afraid he's gonna kill her or hurt her worse. We're sure that he's abusing her. And she adamantly refused to um, listen. The patient was adamant she's going home with the significant other. She just tripped over the dog. I don't understand why everybody's upset here. 
And so she did ultimately go home with a significant other who um, killed her that same day. So ultimately the providers and the hospital were sued and it was determined that they were not liable because again, this is somebody who had capacity. They had documented their efforts to um, persuade her to stay and they certainly couldn't prevent her from making a bad decision. I mean, we're allowed to do that. And um, people sometimes do things for reasons we don't understand. And the key with this was she had capacity. So it's a horrible case also, but I think it illustrates the fact that, yes, people can go on and make bad decisions as long as they understand the potential ramification. That's a very unfortunate case to highlight, but I think you're right. It absolutely does kind of pull some of those key pieces to light in terms of recognizing, you know, some things we teach all of our providers, our residents, et cetera, about these are red flags. These are things we're concerned about. There's, these are efforts we can make to try to help um, make sure that this person is adequately informed and they have the capacity to make this decision, even if it is a poor decision. But yeah, what an unfortunate outcome there. Yeah, that's a horrifying case. And again, they made every possible attempt. I think most of us would do what the providers did in that situation. They were able to separate the woman from the significant other and talk to her in private. And she still kept to that story that she tripped over the dog and that she was going home with him. So as an adult, you can't prevent her from making that bad decision when she has capacity. It's not like child abuse where we have mandatory reporting or elder abuse, again, where we are protected from liability for reporting that she was free to make her own bad decision. So I think let's take a look at those last two cases you presented, Dr. Hennef, and maybe do a little compare contrast. So in the first one, essentially the care team determined, you know, with the limited information we have, that there was a potential serious traumatic injury, maybe head injury, that could be the cause of why he's becoming increasingly agitated, not cooperative. Um, perhaps they did try to obtain more information in terms of why are you not interested in going with us? Why do you feel that further treatment is not necessary? Um, and subsequently didn't get enough information to basically make them feel comfortable that that serious mechanism wasn't causing um, harm to him. And I think in that setup, you're also trying to weigh the risks and benefits. So if he has a major traumatic brain injury that is causing him to become agitated and not cooperative, that is a very time-sensitive medical issue. If you don't make an immediate decision based on the limited information you have, the consequences can be absolutely catastrophic. Um, so I think that that setting, I'd agree. I think I need more information to effectively say whether or not um, I think there was enough to support the aggressive management that was there. But coming back to what you said about reasonable, unreasonable, and really with the hope of we're trying to do the best we can for the patient, I'm going to try to look at it through that perspective. Um, now let's contrast that to the second case where obviously everyone's trying to do all those exact same things, but you now have a patient that did have a full workup. There's no evidence of, you know, organic cause for alteration in mental status or inability to make these decisions. Um, it sounds like there's multiple different people that tried to discuss um, the risks and benefits of 
you know, being able to be discharged into the care of her significant other. And she maintained, you know, a consistent history and information. Um, She demonstrated understanding of what those risks were and still made that decision. Um, So ultimately, I see that there is some obvious contrast here, but neither one of these is a nice classic black and white story. Yeah, absolutely. They were difficult. And in law, we always think it's important to know both sides and to be to argue either side. So if you know what your opponent's position is and what your position is, you can better understand the overall situation and, and come to a resolution. And I think in the case of the trauma patient, you could argue both sides. I mean, you could definitely say, well, that was overly aggressive and that was battery. Um, if it had been clear the patient had capacity, the other side as well, this was a good faith attempt and it was reasonable. They had to do what they had to do for this time sensitive situation. I think this was somewhat of an older case, um, but currently I think a lot of our EMS providers would do something maybe less aggressive, like use ketamine um, in a dose for agitated delirium. That, to me, that would have been an option. At the time, that was not something we were routinely doing. But, you know, again, something like that would be an option, but I think it's a priority that the providers are safe as well as the patient. And really you cannot have an aggressive, potentially violent patient in the back of a helicopter or an ambulance. You know, you need to look out for your own safety as well. Um, I have a more, sort of a more straightforward case um, that shows sometimes these are easier. Um, This was the same hospital where I saw Joe we have um, essentially a female Joe who is an alcoholic and we see her once or twice a week, either intoxication or suicidal thoughts. And the police were called to her house and she was very intoxicated. Someone called because she was potentially suicidal and now she's refusing to come in. And she drinks heavily. So she still can carry on a conversation. She can carry on um, discussion of why she doesn't want to go in and what her options are. But the original call was that she was suicidal. So the medics called and we are actually all on a first name basis with this lady. So I had one of our sweetest, kindest physician assistants talk to her. And I said, I, if anyone can get her to come in, it's Molly. So Molly said um, to her, Hey, Joe, it's Molly. You know, we really want to take care of you and we need to make sure that you're not going to hurt yourself. And uh, we really would like you to come in and see us. And, you know, as sweet as she could be. And uh, the lady's response is F you, Molly. <laughs> so sometimes we don't get uh, where we want to get with these patients. But again, she's intoxicated. There's this potential suicidal ideation. So this is more clear cut. You know, they just brought her in. Um, they could have involved law enforcement, but they were able to get her to come in voluntarily. So some of the cases are a little more straightforward. Um, sometimes it's helpful when you know the patient, but again, this is a lady who, um, lives alone, has made this threat, is impaired. I think that's reasonable and that's a good faith attempt to do the best thing for her and bring her in. Can we expand a little bit on what impaired means here? So if somebody has a single alcoholic drink or maybe someone that doesn't ever drink has two alcoholic drinks and, you know, looks a little bit different than the patient you were just mentioning, that is a chronic um, ingestion of alcohol is like her typical day to day and actually may have a BAC of, you know, 
really high, but be relatively functional. So how do we determine whether somebody is impaired based on alcohol or other drugs ingested? No, I think that's a great question. And um, especially with alcoholics, because again, there are some people that like this lady could carry on a normal conversation and really answer questions that show capacity um, despite the alcohol intoxication. I think in her situation, the suicidal factor is sort of what trumped everything else. But if it had just been intoxication and she could say she understood why they wanted to bring her in, she understood risks and benefits, um, she could recite that back to them, they could easily decide that she had capacity and, and could decline transport. So I think a lot of it is still going back to those, um, you know, the, the short series of questions we want to ask to determine capacity. Like, do you understand the nature of this illness? Do you understand your options? Do you understand the risk of refusing transport? Do you understand the benefit? Can you tell me what I just explained to you? And I think if, if someone, you know, despite um, using some drugs or having a mental illness or having drank alcohol, I think if they still have capacity, um, they have capacity and you, you can't really force them to come in. So I think that highlights as simple as sounding that that case was initially, um, maybe that capacity in different settings may actually be different. So when you mentioned that because she expressed suicidality, even though she was demonstrating, you know, capacity in a lot of the context that we've been talking about, that wasn't as relevant because now she was suicidal versus let's say that she um, hurt her ankle. She rolled her ankle in this exact same setting and was expressing the desire not to be transported. Your risk benefit ratio of, you know, if we do not transport her, what are the risks in both of those situations differ and thus our willingness to accept capacity may differ. Can you speak on that a little? Absolutely. I think, um, again, the suicidality is an issue, an ankle injury, I would just document neurovascular status and decide if she was intoxicated, she may still have capacity to refuse transport. Um, a trauma patient who potentially has a head injury uh, or is hypotensive, he might meet capacity criteria based on those things that we ask or have him feed back to us, but we may still decide he doesn't have capacity to decline transport to the hospital because there's significant risk there. And the key also in these situations is, is there an imminent risk? I don't know of many imminent risks in ankle sprains, um, unless you know you think someone had compartment syndrome. Um, so if it's not life or limb threatening or the patient is not at risk of imminent deterioration, I think you might uh, have a little bit of leeway in terms of capacity and, and who you're um, going to take into the hospital. So you could retain capacity for, let's say, again, the intoxicated guy walking outside in the cold who could tell us his name, uh, the year, where he was, but still didn't have capacity. So you can have capacity for certain things. I mean, he was taking care of himself up to a point. He could have somewhat of a reasonable discussion, but then, you know, he didn't really meet everything. He couldn't really explain back to us what our concerns were. All he would talk about is how he didn't want to come in and he didn't need a breathalyzer test and he wanted to be left alone and he wanted to go home. Um, so I think you're right that capacity, there's not a um, one size fits all kind of scenario. 
So, Dr. Hennef, we've talked a lot about kind of acute causes or acute situations where we might be looking at uh, determining capacity. Are there any chronic conditions um, or, or, or disabilities that may lend themselves to a, a different situation where um, you have to consider capacity? Sure. I think um, we'll, we'll talk about pediatrics, I think, in a minute. That's sort of a different category um, or someone who's disabled and has a guardian because they don't have capacity to make their own medical decisions. Chronic might be, I think the biggest one would be mental illness. Mm-hmm. Um, for an example, I, I don't know why I always think of this story. It's, um, it was kind of funny. When I was a resident, I saw this couple and they were elderly and they came in and they both were delusional. Um, their delusion was that the neighbor was poisoning them somehow with metals and then the metal was leaching out of their skin. So they brought in a mason jar with water and a bunch of metal shavings from who knows where, but they're both insisting 100% sincere, here's the poisoning, this is coming out of my skin every day, you know, these neighbors are poisoning me. So they're paranoid and they have some delusion, but you know, you're allowed to be a little crazy and, and still exist and take care of yourself. And you know, they still had capacity, they were, you know, well enough groomed. They um, were not sick appearing. They were, uh, they had normal vital signs. They were not um, suicidal, homicidal. So they really, as, as unusual as their behaviors were, they were not a harm or a threat to themselves or anyone else. So, you know, chronic condition like that, that doesn't mean you have to come into the hospital or that you um, need to be detained or, you know, have to seek um, mental health treatment. We um, basically, we checked uh, just a quick ISTAT, you know, with electrolytes and convinced them that, oh, we checked these metal levels and they're all fine. So don't worry, you're okay. Reassured them, but there's no reason that I could detain those people. I think that's probably the best example I can think of as more chronic conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and as long as they're not an imminent danger, I think that, you know, they meet that criteria to make their own decisions. Yeah. And, and you mentioned something else, um, you know, that oftentimes people will have caregivers if they have, you know, certain types of chronic conditions. And a lot of times they'll have some form of maybe advanced directive or power of attorney or other sort of declaration. Um, if one of those things is in place, does that um, change the person's capacity for everything? Sure. I think most of those, um, when you're talking about power of attorney, that is something that the patient has willingly signed over to someone well, usually done well, they still have capacity and they want to um, give permission for someone else to make decisions for them later. Mm -hmm. So I think if the patient is incapacitated and has that documentation and it appears that that caregiver is the one authorized and is really trying to act in the best interest of that patient or what the patient had voiced previously that they wanted done, I think that um, is what we have to follow. And I know it's not always so black and white for the medics. So I think sometimes they get there and the family changes their mind or the paperwork is not in place. So I think again, the magic words are reasonable and good faith. So let's ask a slightly different question. So let's say a patient has an activated healthcare power of attorney. So at some point they've been determined to be incapacitated. 
And but now that you're assessing them, you're evaluating them, they seem completely lucid. They can check off all your boxes in terms of, you know, alert and oriented. They demonstrate understanding or comprehension of what the risks and benefits of the treatment or transport are um, and give you very reasonable explanations for why they not, may not want to be transported. But then they have that healthcare power of attorney right next to them and say, no, I'm your activated healthcare power of attorney. You have to be transported. How do we navigate that? I think in that case, you've decided the patient has capacity and, and capacity can certain, certainly wax and wane or change in some situations. I think what the patient wants trumps everything at that point, um, as long as you think that they have capacity. And again, are you being reasonable? Is the patient's understanding clear? And same thing with DNR orders. I mean, a, what a patient wants trumps everything. So they can change their minds, um, you know, even if they have a DNR bracelet on or, um, you know, DNR paperwork, but they have capacity and they tell you, nope, I changed my mind, I'm scared, uh, take me to the hospital, do everything, then that's what we have to do. And in the gray situations, I think most of us err on the side of, is there imminent danger here? If there's a question, probably better off to initiate resuscitation or bring the patient in. Um, I think we've all run into that where a family says, oh, we have the paperwork, but they don't have it. Um, or the nursing home where it's either undocumented or sometimes it's documented both ways. And of course, no dates on the paperwork. You know, one says DNR, one says full code. What do you do? I think since you can't go back in time, probably err on the side of doing what you can for the patient. And it can be sorted out later in the hospital when we have more time, more information. We have additional resources. We might have social work. We have uh, legal representatives, et cetera. I think I agree there entirely. So erring on the side of caution tends to be how we all operate. So if you have disagreement between the activated healthcare power of attorney and the patient who appears to have capacity and there is no imminent life threat, limb threat, um, I think some solid time there in discussion, utilizing online medical medical control, getting as much solidarity as you can between the different players is really helpful. Um, but if push comes to shove and you're worried about this patient acutely, and there's an imminent life threat, um, I think that's when you have to kind of tackle things a little more aggressively. And coming back to, was it reasonable? Were your concerns regarding the potential life or limb injury to this patient, um, requiring maybe quicker judgments and maybe not being able to gather more information, um, completely valid in these situations. So kind of switching directions a little bit, um, given your pediatrics background, um, I'd, I'd appreciate a little bit of insights on how all this plays out if we have any of these patients in their pediatrics instead of adults. Sure. These are uh, really difficult in the gray area of age. So clearly if it's um, a child who's over 14 and the parents are not immediately available, um, we presume that they have some capacity to make decisions. In any imminent um, situation where there could be harm, always err on the side of, of um, caution and bring that patient in. You'll never be uh, faulted for treating a patient or bringing them to the hospital if you thought there was some imminent danger in the uh, parent or guardian was not available. So in most states, in Wisconsin too, the age of majority is eight. There are some exceptions. Um, so for example, a, you know, a 14-year-old who's seeking help for um, substance abuse or pregnancy or STD could still consent for that without parents. 
And in most situations, we just, again, it's good faith and reasonable. Somebody calls an ambulance, this patient was hit by a car, nobody can get a hold of their parents, of course we're going to transport mm-hmm. and start as much of the workup as we can. Um, if it was not an immediate need, we might not do anything invasive. You know, you might not put a central line in or something in somebody who you had time for parental consent. But there is presumed consent for any age when there's an imminent issue. Um, as far as parents, you know, deciding something that's not in the patient's best interest, like if you think the patient might be abused or um, is in any imminent danger, you will not be faulted. Um, courts will always support you for transporting that patient and doing the right thing. Um, there's a, I think, a common scenario people like to use Jehovah's Witness patients. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, what, well, can the parents really say? no, you know, my child can't get a transfusion. There is um, a classic case from, um, it's actually 1944, it's the U.S. Supreme Court, Prince v. Massachusetts. And the judge, this was a case where, you know, parents were trying to refuse treatment for their child. And the judges said, parents may be free to become martyrs themselves, but it does not follow that they are free in identical circumstances to make martyrs of their children. Interesting. Courts follow that sort of theme. Um, an example I had similar, I had a child who had, uh, he was 12, severe congenital abnormalities, so couldn't, didn't really have any um, ability to communicate or make any decisions and certainly could not have at that age. And he was dying of a GI bleed. And the parents were Jehovah's Witnesses, absolutely adamant, no blood, you know, it's against our beliefs. And we chose to transfuse him because at that point, um, the child's best interest takes over. There was no time to get um, a court document or get hospital legal involved, but I think that was the right decision. The Wisconsin cases I mentioned, um, it's pretty clear in state, most states, all states really, that parents have a legal duty to obtain care for their children. There's some leeway with religious exemptions And Wisconsin is one of those states that um, they do sort of allow that. They have a uh, prayer healing exception to child abuse and neglect statutes. So uh, there's some protection for parents who generally believe that, you know, prayer is going to heal their child. However, they can still face criminal charges. Um, So the Wisconsin Supreme Court case where the parents had criminal charges, for upholding or withholding care, excuse me, one was State v. Newman. And that is one where, let me make sure I remember the right one. Um, That's one where the patient had uh, severe DKA and was emaciated. And um, that case, the parents, the child died actually, and um, the parents were charged and convicted of homicide. And the Supreme Court actually upheld their conviction for homicide. And so even though they had this prayer exemption, they could initially refuse care. At some point, the patient's life was in imminent danger. They continued to refuse to seek treatment for her. 
And there were physicians testifying that she would have had a, a 98 or 99% chance of survival had they just, you know, sought care early enough. Um, the other one that I mentioned was Dane County, it's Dane County versus V. Sheila W. And we don't use the last names or the courts don't publish the full names if it's a minor. And that was a um, blood transfusion issue. And I believe the child had leukemia. Um, and at that time, the parents refused a blood transfusion. The child was um, 15. And so, you know, you could argue, well, she's old enough to make her own decisions. I mean, 14 year olds can decide about pregnancy treatment. And so she decided she did not want the blood. So the court actually appointed a guardian and the guardian said, go ahead and transfuse her. Um, so the Supreme Court actually supported, and was by Supreme Court, it's Wisconsin Supreme Court, they supported that decision. Um, there is a, There are some states that adopt a quote-unquote mature minor statute where a 15-year-old might be able to make that decision, but Wisconsin declined to do that. So, you know, these are really tough and they can play out over time, but I think as an EMS provider, always uh, best to be cautious and err on the side of um, getting the patient transported to the hospital um, without obviously doing anything too uh, aggressive if you can avoid it. But the child's health and safety always trumps everything else, including getting permission from parents. Sure. So you, you mentioned being cautious. And one of the places that I try to be cautious is in my documentation. And I always wonder, sometimes when you're assessing capacity, it's almost just like a general feeling, a general sense that something's just not right. This person doesn't have the ability to understand or make appropriate decisions. How do you document that you have done this assessment and, you know, it goes one way or the other? Um, but how do you document that in a way that is beneficial to the patient for continuity of care and then kind of covers your, your butt in the legal sense as well? Right. That's a great question. And it's hard because we can't spend all of our time documenting. And, you know, you might be called to another run. How much time really can you write about this? But I think that um, the key things are patient voiced understanding. Patient was able to repeat back to me what I explained. Patient understands the risks and benefits. And again, documenting, it's the magic word is always reasonable. So what would a reasonable provider document what would a reasonable patient want to know so in other words uh say there's a risk of disability the patient might become hypotensive and uh so on and so forth you don't have to list every possible complication i mean you can just understand patient understands and voices back understanding of the risk including permanent disability or death you don't need to to go hog wild about every single possibility so i think that the biggest thing is the patient's conversation, probably much less important, is A and O times three, because we've seen where that's not reliable. Um, but like in Joe's situation, I think the important thing is, okay, multiple providers have talked to him, multiple providers have witnessed this inappropriate behavior. You know, that's enough really to describe that. We all had the same concerns. So I think, I believe in documenting quality and not quantity. So I don't think you write, need to write a novel or a short story, but I think I would document uh, the efforts you made to convince the patient to come in and 
the sort of the, you know, the three big things we look at with capacity. Do they understand the nature of the illness or situation? Do they understand risks and benefits and alternatives? And then number three, can they voice understanding? Can they repeat that back to you? I think that should be enough. Now, in, in the case of someone like Joe, um, is it also a good idea to document the behavior that you were uh, witnessing that, you know, he wasn't able to find his way home um, and, and kind of the other um, defining characteristics that you were seeing? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, if you have time to put that whole narrative, but I think at a minimum communicating that to whoever's taking over care in the ED, that helped us tremendously because we didn't witness that. But that was sort of the thing that that was the final tipping point for the police to, you know, jump in and help when it was clear he doesn't even know he can't find his house. You know, he's not right. So I think um, if you have time to document that. But I think, again, I think your liability is pretty low here when you've involved medical control, you've involved police and you all have the same concerns. So, you know, if you could document it, but even better if you communicate it to the subsequent providers who will then use that information and put it in their chart to support why they're doing the workup and why they're also not letting Joe just, you know, walk out of the ER. So that's great information, and I think that kind of brings everything into a nice summary, too, in, too, terms, in terms of the key pieces of how do, how do we identify and define capacity, capacity? How, do we how do we document it, and what resources are out there to help facilitate those decisions when we're in the gray zone. Yeah, so I would maybe not just one or two more little hiccups to kind of throw at Dr. Hennep here. So what if one of those components that we mentioned, let's say there's a language barrier, um, so your patient uh, speaks another language and you maybe get some level of them being able to repeat back, but there's a question. Um, any suggestions for when a couple of those barriers show up and maybe how to tackle those and some final parting words here? Sure. I think the language barrier, it's different in a hospital because we usually have more access to interpreters or at least a language line. And in the field, you might... Uh, be stuck relying on, you know, whoever's available. But I think I would try to uh, get a language line service if that's at all possible. It's a little riskier with family members um, because they sort of interpret how they want to interpret. And so um, if in any doubt, I would transport the patient. You know, you just, you just document your good faith effort. Um, an example I have is I was, again, at a small, all, it seems like all my trouble comes from these smaller hospitals, but <laughs> I was in another smaller rural hospital and a lady who's primarily Spanish speaking, um, a family member called and said, she's trying to kill herself. She's suicidal. So the medics went out, everybody speaks Spanish. Nobody speaks English. They end up getting somebody on the phone who um, says she doesn't really want to kill herself. She was just refusing to take her medicine and said she wanted to die. And so we have this dilemma. All we have is family, one family member saying she's trying to kill herself, one family member saying, no, it was a misunderstanding. Um, the medics were really uncomfortable. I was uncomfortable. And I, we convinced them that, hey, sorry, legally, we have to bring you to the hospital if there's concern for suicidal ideation. 
we need to evaluate you, we need more information. So again, you know, err on the side of safety for that patient, even though, you know, it was an awkward situation for everybody. I don't think any of us would have felt great about um, declining to transport her without getting a, a clearer picture of what was going on. Yeah, I think that brings up a, a really good point of um, how you consider when when it's difficult to assess capacity with those language barriers or other barriers in place and what tools you can use. Um, I, I want to thank you uh, for your time very much. Covered a lot of ground, a lot of really interesting discussion, and I think the cases really make it real and uh, applicable. And so I really want to thank you with that and. Uh, wish you the best as you finish up your your law degree uh, in Indiana. Well, thank you very much. It's been fun and it was great to see Dr. Kronenfeld, even though it's not in person. Yeah, it's great catching back up and it's exciting to hear how things are going in Indianapolis, where I got to spend a lot of years and look forward to continuing to hear about all the great things that uh, Dr. Hennef offers and other colleagues that kind of cross this bridge between law, legal, liability, and healthcare. I think that that is an important aspect that we're going to have to continue to address as we move forward. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us uh, today, Dr. Hennef. We really appreciate it. And uh, we will see you in the next edition of our podcast. 